You'll find it helpful to have that passage open in front of you. We're just going to be looking at the uh, final few verses of that from 19 to 25. I've got a question to start us off with this morning. And the question is, is, is this, does the doctrine you believe ever seem to be detached from your life? You know what I mean? You know that God is unchangeable, for example, but it's hard to know what that really means day by day. You know that God is everywhere, but the difference that makes to you is hard wherever you are at that particular time. Well, the passage that we're looking at in Hebrews this morning comes at the end of a massive section of doctrine. We've had literally ten chapters of doctrine laid out before us. And right from chapter one, the author of Hebrews no one knows who he or she is, has been showing us some amazing truths about Jesus. And this is a sort of pivotal passage in the the whole book. So I'm just going to show you a little bit of the structure of the book. I don't normally do this, but it's really helpful to see where we've got to uh, and what's happening. So he said at the beginning, uh, in the introduction, that there's uh, Jesus is God's final word to the world and the very radiance of God's glory. And then the following chapters... I've been explaining that he is greater than angels and greater than the revelation that was given in the Old Testament. That sort of forms a little chunk uh, there by itself. Then there's a little bridge uh, that, um, uh, sorry, then that he's greater than the prom- Moses in the Promised Land. Then there's a bridge. And uh, the bridge anticipates what's coming. It talks about Jesus being our great high priest and the one who's given us great access to God. And then you get this middle section. We read some of it just before that talks about uh, Jesus being a better high priest and giving us better access to God. And now what we have this morning is a sort of bridge that comes after this um, that leads us into the last uh, three chapters and then there's a sort of closing uh, at the end. But really what this is, it's a bridge between the theology and the application, the theology and the practice. The outworking of all that we've been seeing, we're going to see this morning, is faith Hope and love. So if you look at our, our verse this morning, we've got a because Jesus has granted us better access to God and Jesus is our high priest. Draw near with faith, hold fast to hope and consider how to love. And then the three chapters that follow uh, explain what those three things mean. And actually the, uh, the, the bits that we were talking about before just explain that middle section uh, that we've been talking about. That's why I thought it was worth us sort of looking at what, how it fits in with the book. But this is the bridge between the, uh, the theology and the application. So he reminds us, really, uh, to begin with, what we've already seen. And uh, we do need that, don't we? Because we're starting uh, again after a few months of not being in Hebrews. So it's very good that he reminds us what we've seen. Uh, and he shows us then how that leads to what's coming ahead, what we've got to look forward to uh, over the next few weeks and months. So, our first section is therefore. Let me read that to you again, verses 19 uh, to 21. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, and he's going to carry on then to explain what that means, but do you see there, we've got... That because Jesus has granted us access to God. What he's speaking about here uh, in those verses uh, is that Jesus has been a better sacrifice for us than all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. 
All the things that he's been talking about that we read some of uh, just before. And he sums it up like this. Jesus has opened a way into heaven. A new and living way. One that wasn't really there before and one that gives us life. A living way. He's gone through the curtain first, if you like, into the heavenly places. And has now left it open for us to follow through, for us to go in after him. How did he do that? Well, he did it by offering his flesh as a sacrifice. A greater sacrifice than the bulls and the goats of the Old Testament. And he's presented that sacrifice in heaven. He's gone into the heavenly places and is now stood before God. Or sat before God, if you read it, because his work is finished. He's a living reminder there in heaven before God that our sins are forgiven. That a sacrifice has taken place. That there really has been a punishment for sin and it's been taken in Christ. And therefore, we have confident entry into God's presence. As Richard reminded of us earlier, not because of what we're like, but because of what Christ has done. So we need not fear because Christ is present there. And who is Christ? Well, he's our our high priest, isn't he? Uh, We see there in verse uh, 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. That really sums up all chapters 5 to 7. There is one who stands in God's presence, or sits in God's presence, and it's our high priest, Christ Jesus our Lord. So we don't have a a sinful, powerless human being there. There is a man in heaven, if you like, but he's not like us in the fact that he is sinful. But then again, nor do we have someone who is unsympathetic to our weaknesses. Actually, he was tempted just like we were. That's what we saw earlier in the book. So the one who is our go-between, between us and God the Father, is Jesus Christ. The man who is God. The God who is man. And he is greater than those go-betweens of the Old Testament, the high priests of old, even Aaron himself we've seen. And even the good ones that we've had, that we see in the Old Testament, well, they might have been good, but it tells you uh, in uh, chapter 7, verse 23, that even the good ones couldn't carry on because death prevented them from carrying on their service. I think it's always a really interesting way of putting it, isn't it? That, you know, they didn't carry on because death prevented them, as they would have sort of carried on anyway. Uh, if death hadn't. But even the good ones couldn't carry on. So you're left actually with the next one who might not be so good. But Jesus, we've seen, is a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And that means that he belongs to a priesthood that even Levi, the father of the Levite priests, gave tithes to through Abraham. He's the ultimate high priest, if you like. Even the other priests have him as their priest, if you like. And more than just being a high priest, we've seen that he's our high priest. He has bound himself to us, his people. He ever lives to make intercession to the Father for us. And that's basically what we've seen in this wonderful middle section of Hebrews. It's also the reason for what follows. But he's saying, look, all the stuff that we've been talking about, all the amazing things we've been seeing about Jesus, it means something. It actually is going to apply to your life. And what follows is three lettuces. Sorry, three let us is. Uh, don't get that one wrong. Uh, the first let, first lettuce, first letters. Sorry, uh, is let us draw near with faith 
Let me read to you again verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This idea of drawing near with faith isn't new in Hebrews. It was in that other bridge that we mentioned about earlier. It sort of anticipates what's coming. There it's linked with the idea of drawing near in prayer. When we're facing weaknesses, when we're facing temptation, we're to come uh, to our Lord Jesus. But not so here. Actually, this is much broader. So we do approach God in prayer in our life. That's, That's part of what that means. But that's partly because, if you think about it, prayer is like faith with words, isn't it? As we pray, we're expressing our faith to God. As we ask him for things and believe that he will supply So actually, approaching God is more to do with the faith itself rather than the words that are used. It's a life lived in the presence of God. Not just as we pray, though that is part of it, but as we live, actually in God's presence. So what is faith that he's talking about there? Well, it's a word that has slightly different meanings depending on how you use it. Thankfully, in Hebrews, of course, we've got a whole chapter coming up that's going to tell us about what faith is, chapter 11. Let me just read you the first verse of chapter 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So what he's saying there is that faith in the Bible has to do with seeing with the eyes of your heart, not the eyes in your head. Now, that doesn't mean blind faith, ignoring the evidence, but it means choosing which evidence you believe, which one's actually going to affect your life. It means choosing uh, what is most trustworthy, what is most faithful. And it does not mean uh, so much looking on outward circumstances in the Bible, but looking on the God who is behind those circumstances. So it's seeing with the eyes of your heart and not so much at the circumstances that you live in. And the names in Hebrews 11 that are listed afterwards are men and women who did that, who trusted the promises that God made them more than they could see, uh, more than what they could see with their eyes was happening. Men and women who, according to Hebrews 11, through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and who put foreign armies to flight. Now, as you read that, if you, uh, if you know your Old Testament, you'll be sort of thinking of particular stories, won't you? Where you remember those things happened. And with so many of those stories, if the people in those stories had believed what their eyes told them, they would never have done anything, would they? When you think of the, the situations where the army seemed to outnumber them. Well, if they looked, used the eyes of their head, they would have never done anything. But instead, they believed the promises of God. And they went on to do amazing things through God who worked through them. I don't want to say too much on this because we're coming to Hebrews 11 in a couple of weeks' time. But the author of Hebrews is saying, draw near to God, doing what those guys did. Believing the promises of God more than your circumstances. Believing that you have a clean heart, as he talks about in that verse. Believing that your whole being has been cleansed. Uh, do you remember that there in uh, verse, um, second part of verse 22? 
Let us draw near with true hearts in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's saying believe that that's true. Because actually, really, that's just Ezekiel 36. It's on the back of your notice sheet. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 26. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. What he's saying there is, we, as we approach God, as we live life in God's presence, believe that Jesus fulfilled that. That we can enter the holy place cleansed. So really what he's saying to do is look at ourselves, not in the light of our circumstances, in the light of our sin, but look at ourselves in the light of God's promises. And doing that means that we can boldly draw near. Because although we are sinners, although naturally speaking we could never dream of approaching God, even the high priests you read in Hebrews couldn't approach God more than once a year, and only after going through uh, amazing difficult ceremonies to get there. But actually now, because of Jesus, because of the promises that God has made through him, we can draw near. We can enjoy a relationship with God, communion with God, fellowship with God. So because we can, that's the theology, the author of Hebrews says, do it. Draw near. And it's not just an invitation to non-believers to become believers. Though that is true. If you've never come to God, come to God through Jesus. Because God has opened the way for you through his blood. And because there is no other way, come to him. If you've never done before. But remember, this is written to Christians. So it's saying Christians, draw near to God. Don't have fear of the Lord, a fear that drives you away from him. We are to fear the Lord, but that's a fear that draws us near to him. Don't have a fear that believes that you're under God's wrath. That isn't appropriate for a child of God when we take into account that Jesus has taken God's wrath, that he is that sacrifice. It's just not in line with the promises of God anymore, is it? So it's not just about prayer, it's about presence. Actually, we are invited into God's presence, into communion with him. Because one has shed his blood for us and is sat down next to the right hand of God. Our Jesus is there. So our attitude can never be that we're under God's wrath if we're under the wing of Christ. Now, that will affect our prayers, won't it, if we believe that? We will pray confidently as we we pray. Martin Luther uh, wrote a letter to his barber. Uh, I was thought that's a little bit interesting. We, we've, the barber kept it, and we've, we've you know got the record of it. But his barber asked him about you know how should I pray? And one of the things that Martin Luther counselled him to do, he said, pray with a firm amen at the end. And what he means by that is believing that God has actually heard your prayer, that God will answer your prayer. He's not saying sort of mumble through it. He's saying no, claim that God is actually hearing your prayer. See, are we tempted to figuratively or literally pray a tentative, quiet amen? As though we don't quite believe that God has, would, or should hear us. 
sort of mumble away at the prayer. We are sinful, yes, that is true, but our mediator isn't, and our prayers are in his name. So we're to pray boldly, not presumptuously, but boldly in the name of Christ. But it will also affect the rest of our lives as well, won't it? How will we view our lives if we believe that God is against us, that Jesus hasn't paid the price? Well, we'll be browbeaten, won't we? Timid people, knowing that we've lost. We'll be like those insects that scatter when you lift up a rock. You know, the light comes and just runs away. That's the negative, isn't it, if we don't believe this. But what if we do believe this? That we believe that God is for us, that Jesus has paid the price. Well, won't that give us much boldness in life too? That in Christ we have already come into his very presence. And we've not been consumed. In Christ we're already seated in heavenly places. Won't that give us boldness? We have no need to run and scatter. Christ has brought us into the light. He's brought us into the presence of God. We've been justified. God cannot see us as more righteous than he has declared us already. And in that sense, we can hold our heads up high. Not because we're clean in and of ourselves, but because we have been cleansed by Christ. We've been declared innocent. So pray boldly. No need to mumble. Live boldly. Even as you make mistakes, get up again. God has not abandoned you. Your high priest is not surprised that you've fallen. Allow God to lift your head, even as you humble yourself. Draw near to God. Don't run away from him. So that's the first let us uh, that we're to do. Draw near with faith. Believe in God's promises rather than our circumstances. The second letters is let us hold on to hope. Let me read you verse 23 again. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What is hope? Well, hope is having those eyes of our heart fixed on the future. It's similar to faith in the fact that the future is unseen, isn't it? It's something that you can't see because it's not happened yet. That's why the two, I think, are put together in Hebrews 11 verse 1. Both faith and hope have this in common, that it's believing in the unseen. But the hope that the unseenness uh, belongs to, uh, sorry, the the reason that hope is unseen is that, actually, humanly speaking, it's an unseen future. But it's only humanly speaking an unseen future. Because we have seen the future. We see it in Hebrews 12. Christ stood there on the finishing line, welcoming us home. Let me read you Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. I know I've read this the last three weeks, but we'll do it again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So it's that idea, we, we know what's coming. We can see the finish line in that sense. We also see in Hebrews 12 that gathering around Mount Zion is a present reality by faith, but it's also a future reality by hope. And even in, uh, even in this life we have hope, because although we might face discipline, for the, from the Lord it's for our good, 
So Hebrews 12, uh, verse 11. For, uh, the moment, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Again, do you see the present is something, but the future is something else? So our hope, we see in, in this passage, is the hope of heaven. As that old hymn goes, the sky, not the grave, is our goal. We've been hearing about that on Sunday nights, haven't we? It's been going through uh, 1 Thessalonians. We have seen the future, if you like, through the promises of God. And if we know that those lasting treasures are ahead, we will not worry so much when our earthly ones disappear. And this hope had allowed the Hebrews to hold loosely to this world. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property in verse 34 of chapter 10 because they knew they had a lasting one. But if you remember when we were looking through the book of Hebrews, they're in danger of losing that hope. They're in danger of throwing everything away. They were wavering. But the author reminds them that wavering is not needed. They're to hold firm, hold fast to the confession of their hope. They shouldn't throw it away. Why? Well, because the one who made those amazing promises about the future is faithful. That's what we read uh, in our passage. We read to you again. He gives the reason. Uh, verse uh, 10, uh, sorry, chapter 10, uh, verse 23. Let us hold fast to our confession of hope without wavering. For, because, he who promised is faithful. He's faithful over all God's house. That's a reminder back to Hebrews 3, verse 6. Uh, where Moses was talked about as being faithful in the house, but Jesus is faithful over the house. So our promises of this future did not depend on how things, how likely things look now, but on the reliability of the one who promised. That's really what it, it goes down to. Now I've been playing uh, some video games with my uh, boys, and uh, they really enjoy, you know, on the Wii, clicking things and all that sort of thing. And uh, was playing with one of them. This week, and I had a thousand points, and they had thirty points. Uh, yeah, you, you're going to think I'm really cruel now, aren't you? But <laughs> um, one of my kids got quite upset about this. I'm not going to win. I'm not going to win. And I said to him, "I guarantee you, I guarantee you, you will win." But oh, no, no, I don't, I don't. You've got a thousand points. I've only got ten points. Thirty points. Sorry. The thing that they don't know is that I know if you shoot the bad guy at the end, you get three thousand points. So all they have to do is make one shot. And they've won. But they don't know that. You see, actually, they were looking at the score now and saying, no, 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 how can you possibly do it? Whereas I knew what was coming and I could say, I guarantee you that you will win. And they did win because I let them shoot the baddie at the end. <laughs> let them. Yeah, it'll be a bit different when we get older, won't it? But... <laughs> but it doesn't come down to the score now. It doesn't come down to what the circumstances look like now on how trustworthy the one who's making the promises is. Or if you think about it, have you ever been on a car journey with somebody driving the car and it's looking like you're going to be late? Yeah? And the person driving the car says, you know, I will get us there on time. And you're thinking we are miles away from where we should be. I have no idea where we are. But in the end, it comes down to do you trust that person? Rather than the circumstances around you, if they say, I will get you there on time... Is it the sort of person who will get you there on time? Well, with God, he is faithful. He is the ultimate faithful God, isn't he? If he says it will happen, it will happen. 
no matter what the circumstances around you look like at the moment. So we can have hope. So practically, how do we hold on to hope? Well, what I want to say is think of the who, not the how. Not how will this work out, or how will I get through this, but who will get me through this? In the end, it comes down to this. Is God trustworthy? Are his promises true? Well, if he is trustworthy and his promises are true, then whatever our circumstances in life, we have no need to despair. The very character of God gives us hope. The very fact that we are bound to him by Jesus can give us confidence in the face of an uncertain future. To shorten that old hymn, I do not know what lies ahead, but I know who holds the future. We don't know what's around every corner, but we do know who's watching every turn. And Jesus Christ is our mediator to him. And if Christ is our mediator, then God is not angrily plotting our downfall with our circumstances. God is a loving God who's preparing our place in glory, who's working for our good, who's making us more like Jesus. So because of all that we've seen in Hebrews, we have great reasons for hope, even if our circumstances are telling a different story. So that's the second letters, hold on to hope, and we'll hear more about that as we go through Hebrews 12. And then finally, consider how to love. Have a look at verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I've put consider how to love. It's actually a bit more complicated than that. It's consider how to stir up others to love. It's saying think about how you can get other people to do good works and love. So it's a sort of step removed from ourself. But that word stir up that we're to do to other people to help them and encourage them to do good works and to love, it's quite hard to translate. Uh, Some people translate it kindle, because in the Old Testament the same words used like kindle my wrath. So that idea of a fire. But it also carries the idea of a sharpening or a sharp point. That's why it's spur one another on. You know, spurs with a, a horse is what you do, isn't it? You sort of spur on a, a horse. In the old world literature, it's used of something that's an annoyance or an irritant that you've got. So, if you think about it that way, it's consider how to kindle good works and love in others. Consider how to poke one another into love and good works. Consider how to pester uh, people into love and good works. Almost to the point of annoyance, uh, I think you get the idea. But it made me think, you know, maybe I'm not annoying enough, you know, with people. (laughs) Maybe just not annoying enough in general, but uh, are we actually helping one another? Are we encouraging one another? Are we prodding one another to do love and good works? Because do we think that our church is loving enough? Do we sort of think that we're doing enough good works and we've got enough love amongst us? Well, whatever you think to that question, could you be doing something to make us more loving? Could you be doing something to stir us up to to good works? 
Consider how you might stir up others to love and good works. Now, how can you do that? Well, it might be doing something yourself to do that. Sort of paying it forward, starting a culture change. Paying it forward is supposed to be that idea of doing a good deed in return before it's done to you. It can set off a sort of chain of good works, though, of course, we, we do it not expecting anything in return. Could we drop round some flowers to somebody? Because that's a lovely thing to do. Could we call someone who's living alone or is having a hard time just to see how their day's been? Visiting someone who can't get out and about. And you definitely won't be repaid with that one, will you, if they can't get out of the house? But in God's mercy, these sorts of things can create a culture where these things are normal. It takes somebody just to start doing them and paying it forward. So that's one way you could sort of stir others up. It might be asking tough questions. Did you ever do that thing that you said you were going to do after the sermon? Have you ever thought about volunteering or helping out with this? Well, here's a tough question. I don't expect you to ask this to other people, but a question we should consider this week. What have we done this week to show our love to our brothers and sisters in Christ? What have you done this week to show your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? If the answer is nothing, then we probably need some spurring ourselves, don't we? To show our love to one another. And a crucial part of this is meeting up. Have a look at verse 25 again. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How can we spur one another on to love and good works if we don't see each other regularly? Now, Sunday is a huge part of this. It's not exhaustive of this, but it's a huge part of this. This is the one part of the Bible, I think, that really tells us to meet together. Uh, it's the one part of the Bible that tells us to meet together regularly. Um, so, I'm just going to go where the passage goes. And because we do expository preaching here, just working through the Bible, I probably won't get to this passage again for another few years. So please excuse me if I lay it on a bit thick uh, this morning. If you're a visitor, by the way, you can close your ears at this point. We need to think, don't we, how are we, doing about as, uh, how are we doing at this as a church? How are we doing at, at regularly meeting up with one another, not neglecting to meet together? It's actually been quite sad the last few months, if you think about it, how many people have been away uh, so much on Sundays. I don't mean to give any individual criticism here. Everybody has good reasons. But recently on Sundays, we have had around 20 regulars away every week, which for a church our size is huge. Last week I counted, there were 18 regulars away. That's not just people who've come once or twice. That's people who are on my list of people I pray for in our church who are here regularly. And next week it will probably be a different 18 people. That's not a criticism to the people who were away last week. But as a church, I do feel like this is an area where we're we're actually going backwards. Three reasons I'm talking about this. One, each of those 20 people is a person. Hebrews talks about exhorting one another daily so that we might not be hardened by sin. It says daily. Weekly is pushing it, isn't it? If you think about it as an application of that, if we're to do it daily. What if our only exhortation comes fortnightly or monthly? We're actually putting ourselves at real risk of our hearts being hardened. Even if we're away visiting other churches, it's unlikely that we'll have that personal exhortation because we just won't know people. Very well there. So that's the first reason I'm talking about it. Those 20 people are people. The second reason is that low numbers often lead to a low mood. 
We know that it shouldn't, but it does. It's more encouraging, isn't it, when there are more of us here. It reminds us that we're not alone in the fight. It reminds us that there are other people fighting alongside us. Have you ever thought that your absence from church might just not hurt yourself spiritually, but might hurt others spiritually as well? Everybody loses if we're not here. And the third reason that I'm talking about it is that it's here in black and white. We're told not to neglect meeting with with one another. And earlier on, like I say, we're told to do it daily. If anything, it should be more than weekly. Uh, So think about home groups. Think about meeting with other people to read the Bible. We need this to keep us going and to keep us growing. Because if we give up gathering, really what we give up is on each other. If we give up on each other, then we risk giving in altogether. And that's why there's that reference to the day approaching. The context of this is judgment day. The day when Jesus will return. Bearing in mind that judgment is coming, he's saying, this is what you should do. And what follows in the the verses after the ones that we read this morning is some of the most stark warnings in the whole New Testament against falling away. I'll just read you verse 26, the verse that follows. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Adversaries. The sentence there starts with a for or because. He's saying this is a reason not to give up meeting together. This is the reason that we're to spur one another on to love and good works because judgment is coming, including on those who fall away. This is what the author is telling us. This is God telling us, don't think that we can go it alone. Don't think we can do without the company of other Christians. Don't think you can do it without being spurred on by other people. Otherwise, you'll end up hard-hearted like the Israelites in the wilderness, who never made it to the promised land. So, he's saying, exhort one another. That word encourage is the same. Exhort one another daily, if you can, so that you won't have a hard heart. This was Hebrews 3, uh, 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The means that God has given us to soften our hearts is each other. Exhorting one another, spurring one another on, so that we don't get hardened. That word encourage in verse 25 of Hebrews 10 is the same word as exhort, Parakaleo, calling alongside someone. So church, when it's working right, is an emollient. I only learned about this when I had kids. It's something that makes your skin soft. An ointment that softens, that keeps it from going hard. Church, when it's working right, is like a protective elastic band around us. You know, when we start to wander away, it helps us sort of bounce back to the centre. That's when it's working Right. But turning up is only half the battle, isn't it? To get it working right, we need to do what it says. Consider how to spur one another on. We need to encourage and exhort one another. And I do think that we're doing better at that. I think that's something where we are improving. That's why we have coffee afterwards and an over-coffee question. 
just to help us, just to make that culture. Believe it or not, the coffee is not about the caffeine. It's about the company. That's what it's about. They serve better coffee at Starbucks, but they won't care for your soul. So please don't go to Starbucks afterwards. Just put up with our instant coffee. So let me just give you four practical suggestions to close for this section. How can we do this? Well, number one, use Sundays well. Sunday is not just about coming to hear someone preach. That's a big part of it, but it's not the whole. We gather to encourage one another. Are we doing that? If I'm concerned that nobody is doing that with me, could that be perhaps because I'm not doing that with them? I just need to pay it forward and start. Consider how you might do that. Second thing, make gathering a priority. Put church things in your diary first, if you can, and try and work around it. Uh, If I'm not putting out big church events early enough, then please love me by spurring me on and uh, annoying me and emailing me and telling me to get out earlier. Number three, try to miss as few Sundays as you can. Let's get really practical. If you're booking a holiday, why not book Saturday to Saturday rather than Sunday to Sunday? So you need to miss one Sunday rather than two. Mini breaks, can, you can do them midweek as well as the weekend if you're retired. If you have relatives that you go visit, then invite them to come to you every so often and bring them to church. And then fourthly, pursue interests that don't take you away on a Sunday. If you're thinking about a, a child maybe 15 years old and they were trying to decide what to do and you were giving them some advice, and they tried to decide whether to go into athletics on a Sunday or whether they should stay at church. What advice would you give them? Well, I suppose most of us would say, well, come along on a Sunday. That would be the advice. You know, get in, get in, do athletics while you can. It's funny, though, that we think of that being quite obvious with a child, but we seem to make it more complicated for ourselves. And understand that Sundays are hard. There's lots more happening on a Sunday. Uh, lots more things to do. And on top of that, there's more pressure in the week to get everything done. But I know of a 15-year-old boy who did that, who, who decided to give up athletics for, for church. In the end, it depends on what medal you're looking for, doesn't it? Whether you're going for the streets of gold, or whether you're going for a gold medal. Which do you care more about? The crown of glory that you'll get to if you keep going and persevering, or the crown that fades? Well, over the next few weeks, we're going to see what the author explains to us. This is really just the bridge to those other things, just to start us thinking. Those three letters is. But theology does affect how we live. Or at least it should affect how we live. So let's uh, pray that God would give us the strength to hold fast with hope, draw near with faith, and consider how to love. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that the truths we've been talking about this morning are true. Father, thank you that Jesus is our great high priest. Father, thank you that he has given us better access to you, Father, as he's opened up the way through his own flesh that we might enjoy communion with you. So, Father, give us the strength we need, Father, to to draw near with faith, believing your promises. Father, to hold on to our hope, knowing that our future is certain, not because of what we're like, but because of your character. And Father, help us to consider how we can spur one another on to love and good works. Father, help us to be a church that cares for one another. And Father, is uh, is interested in one another and is helping one another make it to that last day. 
And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in a few moments' time, we're going to share bread.